the Acme Lowdown, a podcast series where we get the lowdown on the creative happenings here at Acme. So uh, welcome to the Acme Games channel. Uh, my name is Ari and I'm very pleased to be sitting here with Simon Alti. He's the Managing Director of Zenimax Australia, also known as Bethesda. Simon, it's been a pleasure to have you along. Good to meet you, Ari. So we're sitting here playing a little bit of Worms, which is uh, one of the very first games that Simon actually brought out here to Australia. But you know what, Simon, you've had a long and quite varied career here in uh, in the games industry. Yep. You want to tell us a little bit about your career and maybe some of the highlights? Sure. And um, well, you can pr- as we talk, you'll hear that my accent isn't quite Australian That's enough. That's right. I'm originally from Manchester in England. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So my, uh, I've been around quite a long time now. This is my 25th year in the games business. So, yeah. <laughs> there's, so there's a lot of games gone under the bridge. Yeah. Um, I started off, uh, technically it's 27, because I started off in an advertising agency. Oh, really? Um, and we had a client called Gremlin Graphics, and I launched a game called Zool. Oh, Zool. I don't know if you guys remember Zool. Uh, I do, actually. No, yeah, yeah. Ninja Ant. That's right. It was a classic. I think I had that on the old PC back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So we were doing that on PC and Atari ST and Amiga back in the day. Um, that caught the, the success of that game caught the attention of a company called Ocean, mm-hmm. uh, who any retro game fan probably yeah. knows quite well. Um, I was working in Sheffield, being from Manchester. I managed to get myself a gig back in my hometown. So I ended up running the marketing team at Ocean Software, mm-hmm. and I was there for nine years, and we had a lot of fun. Launched a lot of products, and really that was through the 90s, which is a sort of critical period in the yeah, games industry. Uh, we moved sort of from those hobbyist home spaces on PC and home coders, mm-hmm. and this thing called the PlayStation came along, and CDs, and uh, we went from, when people used to say, what? What job did you do? So I used to work, I work in the entertainment industry. And we suddenly were able to say, I work in games. Yep. And so we became cool thanks to PlayStation. So it was a fantastic period to be in, involved in something. Oh. And I always feel privileged to be involved in an industry kind of right at the beginning as well, which is... And see its development throughout the years. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting. And how long have you been with Bethesda now? Well, been, we've um, been open in Australia for three years, mm-hmm. but I've been looking after Bethesda in Australia for seven Sure. So um, we take a very sort of cautious approach to how we expand into markets. And so for four years, I operated as an agent out here. And we launched a little game called Skyrim. That went quite well. Yeah. Um, and so off the back of Skyrim, we were able to sort of find the right team around us. Mm-hmm. And we opened the, the office three years ago. Fantastic. Yeah. So we're down in Sydney or up in Sydney. So we've heard like you have been in the industry quite a while. Yeah. Um, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the industry since your beginning? There's, there's, there's been a lot. <laughs> uh, I think the, the significant ones, I guess, now is that we, we've, we've gone from um, boxed products to everyone's products. We've gone from building to launch events around games to always on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, in the marketing world, things like franchises start to appear as conversations. Yep. But what it means is we've just got this wonderful spread now of indie, indie kids making extraordinary new games and they've now got a, a route to market, whereas in the past you would have had to find a big publisher yeah, of and, and, and succeed. So I think that's the significant change. Um, I think we've seen the industry ebb and flow um, constantly being compared to other entertainment genre. Mm-hmm. I don't believe we should be. I think we're our own thing. Um, I think we're the... We're a very new entertainment 
field yeah. and we're just starting to find our feet now. The extraordinary thing is as we're finding our feet and learning what we can do with the art, and I do believe it's an art, um, so we have this huge audience of, of gamers um, to play with. So I think that the, sh that the changes aren't necessarily changes, they're the business growing up, or the mm. industry growing up, or gaming growing up, or whatever you want to call it. That's exactly, and, and of course the audience is growing up along with it. Yeah, and in many cases it has, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the, the people who started off as sort of amateur coders or learned a little bit of coding at school. Yeah a long, long time ago in the 70s and then especially in the 80s. Um, they're massive, massive games today. Yep. They've got families, they've got kids. Their kids are at university learning how to make new games and, it's, it's, and so it's, it's, just, it's just growing and growing, which is, which mm. is brilliant. Well, so you mentioned before about that um, opportunities for smaller developers and stuff to be able to put their games out there to market without publishers or without having to rely on larger publishers. Yeah. So I think sometimes there's a little bit of a confusion between what developers do and what publishers do. Can, yeah. you, can you outline for us the role of a publisher in the games industry? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. It used to be very clear. Mm -hmm. It used to be um, the guys in the studio made the game and they would hand over the gold master to the guys that were in publishing. Yep. And they basically, their job was to sell and market the game. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff around that, with making sure something's legally correct, making sure we get things made and manufactured and distributed all over the world. Mm -hmm. So that was the kind of the job of the publisher. I think everyone kind of understands the role of the developer, make the game mm -hmm. and make it good. Um, those lines have blurred as the industry has, has gone through that growing curve we talked about. Um, quite rightly, the role of the developer has become the center of everything that we do. And probably better put, the role of the product, the game, mm -hmm. is at the center of everything that we do. So the role of the publisher is now blurred because the publisher is inherently involved now in the development of the game. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can't just wait till the game's finished and then receive it and then start taking it um, to, to tell people about it. I mean, a brilliant quote, we have inside Bethesda from a, a guy called Todd Howard, who's the, who's the guy behind uh, Bethesda Game Studios, yep. the guy behind Skyrim and those games for Fallout 4. The way he explains it is he makes one game, and then the guys in the publishing group, their job is to take that game and make sure as many people know about it as possible, mm -hmm. and as many copies of that game are, are put into the hands of people. But what's interesting now is that that becomes a cyclical process, because in handing that game over, the way some of the best companies I've worked for operate is that that game then falls into the hands of a bunch of people who want to take it to pieces mm, of course. start crafting it themselves and we can call it modding we can call it whatever you mm -hmm. want to do and so they then start that, that the ecosystem around that product then starts to grow and many many guys now and girls who are making games for themselves started off as modders started off yep. crafting out of that space. So the, the, back to your question of what's the difference between a publisher and a developer, in its crudest sense, the developer makes the game and the people that work in the studio around that, their only focus is to, is to make sure that the, they can make the best, most compelling, most creative, most innovative product that they course, can. Yeah. Everyone else's job is to amplify that. Mm -hmm. Please forgive me for using a word like <laughs> amplifying a conversation around the arts, but that's, that's everybody else's job. And so I've been in the publishing business for 25 years, yep. but I started off, you know, barely involved in the development guys with Ocean. Mm -hmm. But very, very quickly what happened, and this is sort of one of the things that happened in the 90s, was this idea that you just couldn't put a piece of crap in a box and sell it. That's right. 
So it, we had to really start to, to, to sort of deconstruct what games were, who were playing them, what were they about, and particularly when you then connected them to the internet and off we went, and we then start to see products like Quake and Doom appearing. Mm. So it becomes an understanding of this infrastructure. So as we break down what gamers are and what products are, so actually you're, in, you're getting into realms of both what academics would call marketing communications, yep. and marketing communications get into psychology, and psychology is inherently involved in the development process itself. Definitely. Why do people play games? What is it about games that, that makes us want to play Worms That's right. 20 years after After it its initial out? iteration, yeah. You know, so what is it all about? So those worlds of publisher and, and developer are meshed. Mm-hmm. Not, not often game, gamers don't often see that. They see, and quite rightly, champion the creator. Yes. But it is a collaborative process, and the bigger the game gets, the more collaborative it has to be. Mm, and the more people that need to work on it to get it out to the market. Correct, correct. So they'll always be in the business. They'll always be those companies that people perceive are only in it for the cash. Mm-hmm. But those, those, those are rare moments in time now. I, I, I think that, you know, it's that... Um, it's not just about um, product, good product will always find a way out and to mm-hmm. market. It's more now that the market will just not accept anything else. Yeah, that's so, exactly right. So the debate's now about different kinds of products. What's for me is not necessarily what's for you. Mm-hmm. I'm a single player guy. I don't really like wandering out, especially now at my age, wandering out there into the multiplayer world. I just get owned in seconds. Oh, I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's my thing. But it doesn't mean, mean what I like is bad or wrong. Mm. And so that's, where the, that's a big change again in the industry is where we've got to. Sure. I don't think anyone ever sets out to make a bad game. No. No, so, well, you'd never would set out to make a bad product. Exactly, that. exactly. But sometimes so, you learn these lessons right. along the way. Yeah, exactly. So look, a lot of people might not realise that Zenimax has quite a lot of different developers and companies working under that umbrella. Yeah. People like id Software, Bethsoft, etc. Yeah. So if we were working, say, for a different developer, how might we get a company like Bethsoft or Bethesda interested in our game? Yeah, good question. And it's, it's probably the one I get asked the most. Yep. Um, it's hard. Um, uh, we talked about that sort of coming together of the publishing developing universe. Mm-hmm. And I think companies like Bethesda um, are, are really interesting because uh, are sort of similar to Valve. What we really are is a sort of big developer group. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've come from that developer side into the publishing world and we self-publish. Yep. Uh, other organizations have come from the publishing world and they, they seek out developers and they will take the, the product and they'll work together with them to take that game to market and the developer stays independent. We don't do that. So the studios inside the, what we call our family are all part of the family. They're wholly owned. Sure. So it's very rare that we will take a product to market that isn't part of what we do. Mm-hmm. The reason we do that uh, is, is twofold. The, the, the smart business reason is it means that the intellectual property that we take to market is always ours. And that's where the value is in, in the future. We talk about this always-on world. Mm-hmm. The always-on universe is called the Elder Scrolls. And so that it's important that you own and contain and can develop every aspect of that. That's, that's one reason. The other reason, though, is that by having the studios in the family, it allows for a collaboration. Yes. Now, one of the things has happened as the industry's grown is we're t- kind of obsessed in video games with technology and technological leaps and technological development with this weird hybrid of, of arts and technology, of, mm. uh, technology achievement. And for years we've been obsessed with what each new cycle would bring bigger, better, faster, more. That's right. 
Where we're at right now is fascinating because it's not really about bigger, better, faster, more anymore. I mean, the media like to talk about that, mm. but I keep, I'll go back to it. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant um, metaphor for what we're talking about in our worms. It's not about bigger, better, faster, no. more. It hasn't changed ostensibly in the last 20 years. Not at all. So it's about craft story. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's about that strangest of things, gameplay. Yeah. That none of us can quite define. So what we like to do with our studios, to go back to your question, is we like them to collaborate. So there'll be a sharing of technologies, yes. Yep. So we'll see, you know, you, um, you talked earlier about id. And, you know, and the technological leaps in this industry, um, 3D gaming, the first first-person shooters, mm. things like that have all come from the, their incredible technical infrastructure. Definitely. They share that within the group. But what they're also about, though, is is the craft of gameplay in terms of things like deathmatch. Mm, what does that mean and how does that how has that changed the gaming universe? Then you look at our other studios. So we have Tango in Japan, mm -hmm. which is headed up by a guy called Shinji Mikami, the guy behind Resident Evil. Yeah. So this is a completely different genre of gaming. And that's all about scaring the bejesus out of you exactly as you play. Right. It, it's not about bigger, better, faster, more. No. It's about pace. It's, 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 it's about what you can't see. Mm. It's about those noises in the background and what's going to happen to you when you get through that door. So the craft of, 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 and the art of storytelling becomes so important there. Mm. Um, we have another studio, Machine Games, and Machine Games is a fascinating part of our organization because they're, they're a developer born out of a group, the Starbreeze Group yep. in, in Scandinavia. And they want, the, for their first true project for us, they wanted to take Wolfenstein. Mm. And so they took that classic kind of um, franchise that kind of been forgotten a little bit and they repurposed it. Mm. And what, what came out of that was, the revelation of that, what came out of that was, we made Wolfenstein story-based and character-based. Mm. And the reason that game succeeded was because people, the characters really resonated with people. People found themselves immersed in story and character. Definitely. So, the, you know, the, all of that as I, as I talk and that sort of, I think your original question a few hours ago when I started talking <laughs> was, um, how can a developer get themselves uh, make themselves interesting? Mm -hmm. It's tough to get themselves attracted to us because we have that sort of family approach. You need to sort of come into the family. It doesn't mean people don't join our studios. And if you've got a great game idea or if you're a small team and you believe you've got something great, that pushes story, pushes character, pushes mm -hmm. innovation, has some extraordinary new gameplay aspect to it, opens new markets, um, then come find us. Um, come talk to us and, and we'll be interested. But there are places where the, the people can go now yeah. and you can self-publish if you want. Most definitely. Yeah. And of course, there are quite a lot of publishers that focus on smaller developers and indie games as well. That's true. That's true. And now, that's really important. In your last response, you actually mentioned story and character and, and also those elements of narrative, which are so important quite a few times. Mm -hmm. How important do you think narrative is to a game? I mean, we, we've seen that you, you have added quite a lot of narrative to the Wolfenstein uh, franchise, yeah. but it's kind of gone a little bit the other way with the Doom franchise, whereas Doom 3 actually had quite a lot of narrative and we've actually seen... A, Almost a little bit of fun poked at, at the, la the lack of narrative in the new Doom. It's gone back to, you know, focus on the mechanics and, and the gameplay and the deathmatch in this one. So yeah. how important do you think narrative is to gaming? Personally, I think it's, inc it's incredibly important. Um, but it is also about what is the experience you want from your game. Mm. If the experience you want from your game is uh, clan-based or you've got a group of mates and your, your entire uh, 
reason for playing games is is to survive in a competitive arena mm-hmm. or to work together um, cooperatively in a in a military space then possibly narrative isn't that important but it probably is too in terms of setting the context for what it is that you're you're, you're playing in and engaging in yes. even even new doom the, the new dooms proving to be so popular because it's gone back to those core gameplay mechanics of the original doom that push forward uh, you are rewarded as you dive into the gates of hell with more and more bigger guns and, and demons. Exactly right. But at the heart of that is still this compelling story is who are you? Why are you in hell? Yeah. And, and it, that provides context to that. So I, I do think it's a little bit sort of horses for courses, but I think narr- to answer your question personally, I think narrative's incredibly important. Mm. So if we look at something like, like Fallout 4, yes. or our Fallout franchise, then it becomes heart and soul of what it's about. Mm, it is hugely narrative driven. Yeah, and now, you know, not just Fallout, but so many of the open world games now, which are so popular, um, are because you take that narrative, but it becomes part of you and you can make it whatever mm. you want to make it and you can go wherever you want to go within weaving yourself within the first right, So you, you end up owning that story. Exactly, exactly. And only games can do that, by mm. the way. It's, it, that's exactly, it's something yeah. unique to the medium. Yeah. Well, so we've seen quite a lot of changes in the uh, Australian games industry over the last little while. Sometimes yeah. some fairly big developers um, closing up shop and, yeah. and uh, etc. So what do you think the Australian games industry needs to do to stay competitive in the future? Yeah, it's, it's a really big question. Unfortunately, it's one that, that, that is, is basically getting a voice now. Mm. Um, like everything in life, whether we like it or not, we need all aspects of, of the economic and political landscape to engage before we can move forward. So we first of all need government and we need um, everyone involved in all aspects of the games business and the entertainment business to accept gaming as the credible and important force it is in Australia. And I don't just mean economically because mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's kind of accepted by people, but I mean creatively. And I particularly mean, and it's something I, I, I get quite heavily involved in, in there's some incredible talent now. There are thousands, literally thousands of people Girls, guys coming out of universities in Australia mm. looking for a career in the video games industry. Exactly right. If they want to make, if they want to uh, get together with a couple of their friends from school or people they've met at uni and make a game, maybe like Worms, mm-hmm. they can do now. And everyone gets very excited about that. And, it's, and it's, it is empowering. Mm. Um, I, I guess similar, similarly empowering to, to the music industry when that all broke and then rebuilt itself a few years ago. You know, you can stick yourself up on YouTube and you can start to to self-publish. But it isn't just about that. Maybe you have an ambition to create the next huge open world project. You can't do that without scale, without money, without a a larger team, without the ability to take that product to every market around the world. So to do that, you need publishers or you need scale to your development group. So people should in Australia be allowed to choose where they want to go. If right now you wanted to make that big game, you have to go overseas. Mm. You have to go and join one of the development teams or in the US, particularly in Canada, where government got involved and made it their business to promote video games as an art and back that. Um, So it starts with government. So we have to, and we are doing, and we're seeing already, um, very recently, the, the, the bodies from the Games Development Associations here and the Publishing Associations here now getting government to wake up and, and to the importance of video games as, as an industry mm-hmm. and as an art 
uh, and to do something about it. So it starts there. Then it starts by making sure that all those people don't run off overseas. That's right, by providing those opportunities here Correct. within this country to do it. Absolutely. So everybody, I think everybody wants that to happen. We're at the very beginnings of that happening. The way it can really happen quickly, though, is for some extraordinarily creative, innovative, mind-blowing product to appear out of Australia. Mm. People will then look back down here and then go, hey, what is going on here? And it grows from there. Mm. That's kind of happening already. It's specifically happening at the moment in the mobile and the free-to-play space. Definitely. But we want that to happen across the whole of the business. So it's kind of a bit of a clumsy answer. It's, it's a very, very big question. And, it, and it, it needed to start with this finding this next generation of games makers. And I absolutely know that they're there. They're there and they're making product right now and they're pushing games development into spaces that you could never have imagined um, when I started working in this business. They now need a voice and they need infrastructure and organization behind them so that they can take their products mm -hmm. to the global stage. And only by going global can you actually achieve the levels of success that we're specifically talking exactly about. Exactly right. Yeah. So what, look, what advice would you have then for game makers here in Australia in order to try <laughs> and get those games out there to try and build that industry? Um, get a voice, but make that voice. Um, don't just kick against the system. Mm -hmm. Work with the system. Sure. Um, I think one of the things, I often get angry about the situation, but that's not going to get me anywhere. So what I need to do is, you know, I said recently there were, there were, there were several um, meetings and, and representations to government. It's very easy to look at the transcripts from those um, meetings and go, why the hell do these guys not know anything about what's going on in our amazing business? Mm -hmm. But the better way to look at that, and the conversation, the talk I had to have with myself was, now they do know. They actually sat there and go, oh, we had no idea that there were this many people making games in Australia, yeah. that the industry was this big, that it's delivering this much to our economy, um, that it's, there are so many people engaged both in education and teaching in this space. So it, it's, that process has begun. Mm -hmm. So people need to get involved in, in, in that, have a voice, have a mature voice, and show people what you're about. Yeah. Uh, that's advice for anybody, by the way. That, that, we can be, and games makers can be, an insular bunch um, and stick to their own group. People need to see what you've got. They need to That's know right. what it is. It goes back a little bit to that. Let's not call it publishing. Let's call it communicating. Sure. So, you know, maybe you've got friends or maybe there's people in your group that are really good at presenting, presenting and talking. They might not be any good at coding. That's they right. might know nothing about level design. But that doesn't mean that they're not an important important part of the process of taking your game. Exactly right. And also, by the way, if they're a really cool gamer and they know um, how to play games, they're really useful for you from a mm -hmm. QA perspective. So take that person and use that person to, to voice your group. So that, that it's important that we speak up and, and we, don't, we don't get petty and we don't get insular about it, that we are, we, we are proud and passionate about what video games is yeah. and we tell people. Definitely. Yeah. Well, we've seen look a lot of development in the three D technologies yeah. recently, and virtual reality technologies particularly. I mean, we've obviously got the, the Vive, we've got the Oculus Rift. Um, how do you see this technology shaping up at the moment? Is Bethesda really interested in working with this technology? Well, we've not talked too much about those technologies from a Bethesda point of view. Yeah. But what I can talk to you about it from a personal point of view. Um, 
and there's two, there's two sides to it. It goes back to something we talked about before. It is, I mean, the, the, the global show E3 is about to happen in, yep. in LA once again, and the, the world's media will, will once again look, look to video games to find out what's going on. And I'm sure that the noise will be VR. It it's will. just be VR noise, VR noise. This is the year of VR noise. Uh, but the two sides to that are, are interesting. On the one hand, that's what I said to you before, this isn't, doesn't have to be about bigger, better, faster, more. We shouldn't ever, and you know, going back to our advice for games makers, don't ever let technology drive you. You need to drive the technology. Definitely. What's wonderful for those, some of those indie games makers now is we do have a level playing field with shareware and middleware. Mm-hmm. So anyone can make something on Unity now. You know, that, those things are there for us. So creativity and storytelling goes back. Back to my big point, comes to the fore. So on the one hand, don't let VR as a technology say that this is going to change gaming forever. It's not, it's just another cool thing we can use. Mm. Where it's really going to resonate is what game makers do with it. And I don't think we've seen that yet. So I think we've seen some extraordinary cool tech demos. That's right. Um, and that's fantastic. And, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to try quite a few of them myself. And they mm. are, oh my goodness, where is this taking me? You know, and you, you, know, you, do, you do all of that that everyone's experiencing now. But the, the sea change will come when someone creates a product, a game, that takes that technology and transforms the gaming experience. Definitely so for the software to catch up with the hardware. Yeah. What's interesting though is that VR is opening those doors and those conversations to a, to a mm. wider group to make gaming more relevant. Definitely. Um, people are trying it and not thinking they're actually involved in games. That's right. If you talk to a lot of people these days and they say you're a gamer and they go, no, no, I don't play games. And then you see them on the bus and they're there on their phone That's right. for an hour playing the game. So with VR and with mobile and tablets and, and PC gaming now, which has had this whole new renaissance of its own, mm. um, yeah, we're seeing more and more people who are actually gamers, they just don't like Well, that's right. Particularly with that, this idea of the, the, the casual gamer now coming to the fore and actually making up most of the market. It's, it's becoming quite interesting. Yeah. So finally, look, have you got any advice to future game makers out there worldwide or in Australia? What advice could you give from your 25 years of experience? Well, I mean, specifically advice for people in Australia is something we haven't really seen is Australian games. Mm-hmm. So we see people create versions and new worlds and amazing fantasy experiences that often are, you know, quite rightly influenced or referenced by other games. But no one's really, as far as I'm aware yet, looked at what we're about That's true. in Australia and said, okay, what is special about what makes Australia Australia? What can we... And there are some obvious places to go. Um, and there's some less obvious places to go in terms of recent history as well. Um, and, and, and dive into that as, as a space and mm-hmm. a place to play. That could be really interesting. And I don't think people are doing that. I mean, one of the um, interesting things about going back to my early days in the industry was being in Manchester was that one of the reasons the games makers out of Manchester in the northwest of England, particularly Liverpool and Manchester, succeeded through that time is they were making games for themselves and that those games actually kind of become part of a movement, this Manchester movement at the time. It started to link up with film and music and the whole scene that happened in the 90s. It was, games became an important part of that. Um, I remember someone writing about there's, there's, there's a canal called the Manchester Ship Canal that connects mm-hmm. the ocean with Manchester. It goes through Liverpool. And somebody wrote an article in the media, back, even way back then, the mainstream media, saying, calling it the Silicon Canal. Yep. Um, but that was because we were making games 
not just games on a mass market scale. We were making Jurassic Park on one level, but on another level, we were making simulators and games referring to the history of that area. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with people. So why don't we do that for Australia? Yep. On a global level, let's just shake the whole damn thing up. Yep. You know? Yep. Um, when Worms came out, everything was going to be just about to explode on 3D. Yep. And we took a tight 2D side-scroller and it changed everything and people went back to that. Um, just a few years ago, we released a game called Dishonored. Yeah. At the very end of the last uh, technology cycle, we, we released a single-player game, new IP, into a market that, was, that everyone said, well, there's only multiplayer now. Mm -hmm. so you don't have to follow the curve. You no. don't have to follow the crowd. And that's what's amazing about some of the indie games we're seeing. Definitely. Some of my favorite games at the moment are, you know, things like Beyond Eyes. It's just going, yep. I never, I never imagined that. Mm -hmm. That's what people need to come up with. Mm. If you've never imagined it, then we want to know what it is. And right. We want to play it. And particularly doing some of those really interesting different games that can like, talk to us quite differently through narrative. So through game properties like Life is Strange or things like that, or some of the stuff coming out of Telltale at the moment that really takes it back away into that narrative thing and, and telling us a story, letting us own that story. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, on a very grand scale, Uncharted's doing it right now, really. Mm. It's been criticised in some quarters for being too accessible. Mm. Which befuddles my mind. <laughs> you know, why, why would it be? Did you enjoy the experience? Clearly, most people did because it's reviewed extraordinarily yeah, well. Yeah, it is. And the critics love it. Um, it's a great piece of art, but it's very, very accessible. It is. And it allows that moment, which, you know, even in my long career, rarely has happened, which is, I finished that. Yep. And that sense of accomplishment of, you finished it. And what you really mean is, I understand the narrative. I've been taken on that journey. I feel part of that journey. And I can't wait to go on the next adventure. That's There's something really compelling in that. Well, Simon, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time here today. been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash Acme Online or the Acme website.